0: It has been a, uh, an interesting weekend, and just a brief word about that. Uh, I had the opportunity to attend for the very first time a session of the New York Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, and that session includes all of the clergy in the New York Annual Conference and uh, lay members also from each church, in the New York Annual Conference or throughout the New York Annual Conference. And and the conference was in session on the campus of Hofstra University, a university that I had never visited before on Long Island. And so there was a lot of newness about the weekend. But um, that conference accomplishes a number of important things. But the best part about it for me is that uh, for all of the things that United Methodist clergy do wrong, and that's a long list, But for all of the things that United Methodist clergy do wrong, they tend to sing well when they're together. They really do. And so I loved being there just to hear this group of clergy and laity singing the hymns of our faith. It was rejuvenating for my spirit, even in the midst of some of the harder conversations that we had to have. But part of why I wanted to mention that is that uh, my heart is filled with gratitude because you need to know that there's a team of people from this congregation who served this church faithfully, who devoted their personal time to being present at that conference. And I simply want you to know about that. I'm speaking of... um, uh, Becca Gradzina Macias, who's in the choir, and uh, Sue Bynum, who's also in the choir, Ben Jordan is one of our lay members, and Reverend uh, Mickey Correa was there, and yours truly. But we were all sitting at the same table, and you need to know about these good souls that on your behalf, they were present at that annual conference, participating faithfully, uh, taking it very seriously but also I think it's fair to say we were able to enjoy some laughs along the way as well because that's just a good thing to do. So I'm grateful for that team and grateful for my first experience and grateful to be appointed officially now to Christ Church uh, New York City. So yeah. I was saying to these folks that there was a time when all clergy were men and when there weren't really any working spouses other than uh, the work that needed to be done in the home where clergy would go to annual conference and they would find out where they were going to move that year. And they'd have about a month to go home and tell their family time to pack up and move. In a portion of the history of our church, that's when it was done. Mercifully, that's not the way it's done anymore. Can't be done that way, but it was good to hear um, our bishop Uh, reference my name that way, so thank you for celebrating that with me. It is uh, an incredible honor to be your pastor as we continue to get to know one another and as we continue in this journey of faith that we share. I was uh, 22 years of age attending seminary and serving a local church, a small local church, and at that point in time one of my most significant spiritual struggles was the question of how to pray with the sick and the hospitalized. And I had the idea back then that it might be a dangerous thing to incorporate too much healing language in the prayers that I would pray because after all, what if the people with whom I was praying didn't experience obvious healing? I was afraid as a 22-year-old that perhaps they would come to the conclusion that their faith wasn't strong enough or even worse, that perhaps God wasn't listening to the prayer in the first place. And so back then the prayers that I would pray would be prayers that I would describe as tentative prayers, anemic prayers. They weren't blasphemous. I would pray for peace, I would pray for comfort, but noticeably absent from the prayers that I would pray back then was any direct reference to God's ability to heal the people with whom I was praying it felt safer to avoid the issue of healing altogether. Around that same time, in a seminary class on pastoral care, I raised this very issue of praying with the sick. And my professor at the time, uh, an Episcopalian by the name of Dr. John Westerhoff, spoke words that I immediately scribbled down in my notebook. And what he said to me that day was this, Whatever you do, Eric, actually he put it this way, for God's sake, Eric, pray with vision, whatever you do. Pray with vision, as though you truly believe that the one to whom you were praying has the wherewithal to heal people. You don't have to focus on a particular result, he quickly added, You don't have to focus on a particular result, especially since healing takes many forms and since even death itself can be a form of healing. A concept, by the way, that I had never taken seriously until that moment. The concept of even death becoming an experience of healing. And so he said, you don't have to focus on a particular result, but whatever you do, Pray with the kind of vocabulary that names very specifically God's ability to heal people. Because, he said, people in hospital beds fighting for their lives have precious little use for your platitudes and your spiritual slogans. What they need is a prayerful reminder of the biblical truth that Jesus Christ holds lordship even over their infirmity pray with vision as though you truly believe that the one to whom you are praying has the wherewithal to heal. It was a deal changer for me, quite frankly. Since that time, the way in which I pray with the sick and the hospitalized has changed dramatically. These days when I have the opportunity to do that, I pray as boldly and specifically as I can that in the name of Jesus, God will bring healing grace somehow into the body and the spirit and the mind of the one with whom I'm praying. I pray these days that God will bring deliverance from pain and patience and sustenance until the fullness of that deliverance comes. I pray boldly and specifically these days for God to bring strength where there is weakness, for God to awaken hope and joy wherever there is despair or discouragement, that God will bring peace wherever there is anxiety or fear. Most of all, I pray these days that God will supernaturally come against whatever it is that is coming against the person for whom I'm praying even though I might not know what that will look like. And by the way, I do not believe that those prayers are a theological sidestepping of the profundity of human suffering. I really don't. Because there's plenty of conversation about that as well. I don't believe that these prayers that I'm praying, these boldly specific prayers that I'm praying for healing, are a form of spiritual denial. But I do believe that these prayers are a means by which to name the living presence of Jesus who cares more about our infirmities than we do, quite frankly, whose nature is to heal and whose desire is to become intimately and restoratively proximate with human suffering. And why do I believe that praying this way is so urgent? Well, for an answer to that, I turn to Scripture. And more specifically, I turn to the scripture that we heard in Matthew's gospel today, because in that scripture it becomes very clear to us, I believe, that Jesus calls his followers to follow him into a ministry of radical healing. Follow me, Jesus says to a tax collector. A tax collector by the name of Matthew, who we are told is hard at work at his tax station, his tax booth. He's a tax collector, meaning that probably at this point in his life, the only healing in which Matthew is interested is the healing of his ledger at the end of a day. Or perhaps the healing of his relationship with the Roman government that was expecting a full tax, an exorbitant tax from the people. Yet, Matthew seems to find something strangely compelling about Jesus' invitation to follow him. We're not told about his inner monologue. We're not told about his motivations. All that we're told in Scripture is that Matthew got up from his tax station and began to follow Jesus as though perhaps Matthew sensed that Jesus was calling him into something that was worth the disruption of his life. And what follows after that moment of Matthew's calling are these three, how would I describe them, healing events, three healing events that must have had this tax collector's head, metaphorically at least, spinning. First, Jesus speaks healing words to a group of religious leaders whose thinking is sick with the cancer of religious judgmentalism and discrimination. In fact, this group of religious leaders are muttering to one another about Jesus' tendency to break bread with sinners, tax collectors, people like Matthew. And so Jesus says to this group of religious leaders, hey, uh, why don't you try living by mercy instead of living by religious sacrifice, which is to say, Why don't you try practicing a religion that is less about determining who's in and who's out and more about the kind of love that welcomes everybody to the table? Why don't you try that? See how that feels. And make no mistake about it, those were healing words. Disruptive, but they were healing words spoken into a religious system that had institutionalized discrimination like many religious systems tend to do, including Christianity. And Matthew, the tax collector and new follower of Jesus, got to experience that healing word up close and personally. He got to see how how those words landed. Next, Jesus experiences a healing event with a woman who had been dealing with a flow of blood for 12 years a condition that according to religious law would have severely limited the degree to which she was able to participate in the religious community. Can't go into the details of all of this, but there would have been a portion of the religious community that would have looked upon her very body as being incomplete and less than whole. So that according to ceremonial law, she would have been looked upon as ceremonially unclean. And I'll ask you to think about what that kind of ethos, the impact that kind of ethos would have had upon this woman's life for 12 years. And if you want evidence of that impact, make note of the fact that this woman doesn't believe that she even has the agency to engage with Jesus face to face. So at some point she must have thought like this, since I cannot have that sort of interaction with Jesus face to face, well, then maybe I can at least reach out and touch the cloak that he is wearing. Maybe if I simply touch the hem of his cloak, there will be some healing grace in that for me. Maybe. But the beauty of this moment, the beauty of this moment is that Jesus becomes instantaneously aware of the urgency of her reaching, and he turns to her, looks into her face, and speaks to her these words, daughter, take heart. And I wonder, well, I have to believe that this woman had not heard those words, take heart from anyone in a long time, let alone a rabbi. Daughter, take heart for your faith has made you well. And immediately we are told this woman was made well. And Matthew, the tax collector and new follower of Jesus, got to experience that healing moment up close and personally. And then finally, in what has become a healing pilgrimage by now, Jesus goes by invitation to the home of a religious leader whose daughter was sick to the point of death. In fact, when Jesus arrives at the house, the neighbors are all out in front announcing the girl's death already and beginning the rituals, beginning the rituals of a funeral. But Jesus interrupts the proceedings Hey, stop it! Quit it with the funeral. This girl is not dead, she's merely sleeping. And the scripture tells us that the people laughed at Jesus. I'm sure that's a minimalist account. Think about the response of the people. Uh, yeah, o- okay, how about slowing your roll, Dr. Jesus? We've seen, we have seen dead people before. We really have. We know what they look like. That girl looks dead to us. Why don't you go check it out? So Jesus walks into the home and takes the hand of this girl and through healing grace somehow brings her to her feet out of a sleep that seemed like death and into a restored life. And Matthew, the tax collector and new follower of Jesus, got to experience this healing moment up close and personally. And by this point in time, Matthew, who was no dummy, must surely have come to the conclusion that this ministry into which Jesus had called him, follow me, he must surely have come to understand that this ministry into which Jesus had called him was a ministry of radical healing and restoration and transformation. A ministry in which broken bodies are cared for, not shamed. A ministry in which weary souls are revived. A ministry in which distorted thoughts are rerouted. And a ministry in which things like injustice and discrimination are seen, recognized, named, rectified. I believe that Jesus calls Matthew and the disciples into that kind of ministry And 2,000 years later. I believe that Jesus is still calling the church into that kind of ministry, a ministry of radical healing, restoration and transformation. I'll ask you to understand even as I say that what history has frequently taught us, and it is this, not all healing will result in curing. And you already know that to be true from your own prayers and your own life experience. Not all healing in Jesus will result in curing. In fact, I've come to say it this way, some of the most healed people that I know, some of the most healed people that I know are people who have died of cancer. Were they cured? Sadly, no. I officiated at many of their funerals. But were they healed? Were they healed in the sense of being able to approach death with an unexpected spirit of peace and a soul that had been liberated from the governance of resentment? Were they healed in the sense of experiencing this mysterious contentment over having said everything that needed to be said to people and over having prayed everything that needed to be prayed. Were they healed that way? I say through the lens of faith, absolutely. And you tell me, which is the more impressive miracle? Because they're both miracles, but which is the more impressive, the curing of the cancer or the continued living with the cancer but without a hardened heart? See, Healing in Jesus does not always result in curing, but it always results in transformation. Transformation of broken bodies, certainly, but also transformation of desperate souls and transformation of attitudes and systems and practices that cause harm. It was years ago, and he sat across from me at the table in my church office, opening his soul to me with a vulnerability that made me feel as though I were being invited to stand upon the sacred ground of his soul's journey. It was one of those moments. And I remember that he wiped away tears as he talked with me about his parents, whom he dearly loved. But two years earlier, his parents had made clear to him with painful words that his partner would not be welcome at their home for Thanksgiving. If we were to open our heart to you, were some of those words, or if we were to open our home to you and to your partner, we would be sanctioning unbiblical behavior and so, son, you were welcome for Thanksgiving. But your partner is not. Which, of course, was tantamount to saying that this son was not truly welcome at the Thanksgiving table, since being at that table would require the accommodation of a rejection of a two-year love relationship that had become an essential portion of who he was. My parents will only have me in their home, he said, if I pretend to be something that I'm not. And then he paused as though he were recognizing something that he had never considered before. And I asked him, what are you thinking about? And he said, well, I'm just thinking that's the same way I feel. And this was stunning to me. But he said, that's the same way I feel whenever the United Methodist Church gathers for its big conferences to debate homosexuality. I never thought about it this way, he said, but it feels exactly like this. It feels like all of my siblings are gathering in an auditorium somewhere debating over whether or not my partner and I will be welcome at the Thanksgiving table instead of simply loving us for the totality of who we are. And so we talked about that for a while and I remember at one point in the conversation feeling like it was okay to risk a question and I said, will you you tell me just because I'm genuinely curious, I don't mean this as a manip- manipulative question, but can you tell me why do you stay in this denomination? Why do you stay in this United Methodist Church that seems to have caused you so much harm? And his response continues to resonate in the chambers of my memory. I'm still in this church, he said, because my, my broken soul experienced healing in a United Methodist congregation that affirms my identity as a gay man, that honors the love that I have with my partner and sees that love as something holy, and that refuses to treat the Bible as something to weaponize against the people it has decided to exclude. I'm still a United Methodist Christ follower, he said, because I experienced healing in a United Methodist congregation like that. You see, friends, I describe myself as a proud ally to the LGBTQIA community Not because I'm eager to engage in public virtue signaling. I describe myself as a proud ally, not because I'm eager to fuel a denominational debate about human sexuality, and certainly not because I want to jump on the bandwagon of an issue that the church has deemed, oh, controversial. Rather, I describe myself as a proud ally to the LGBTQIA community for theological reasons. I do it because I believe that the healing ministry of Jesus Christ demands nothing less than that. I do it because I've had far too many conversations over the course of three decades, like the one that I just described to you. And I do it because I've uh, officiated at far too many funerals following suicides that I know had something to do with the isolation and the harm caused by discrimination. I describe myself as a proud ally because I have this image that we're living in a world in which millions of desperate souls are reaching out to touch the cloak of Jesus, even though they might not name it that way. And I long, please hear this, I long for the church of Jesus Christ, I long for this church to be the cloak that desperate souls are able to touch. Do you at Do you find yourself, I wonder, in any way in need of healing today? You know, physically or emotionally or spiritually. I'll be honest with you, I do. But if that describes you at all, if you find yourself in need of some kind of healing, I would invite you to join me spiritually speaking in reaching out to touch the cloak of the one we worship, in the confidence that when we do that, He will sense the urgency of our reaching and turn toward us, look into our faces, touch our hands, and whisper into our souls something like this, child, child, take heart because today I will offer to you not simply the hem of my garment, but the fullness of my heart because I love you, child. I love you. Now, come. Come with me out of the things of death and into the abundant life that I long for you to experience." And there was this tax collector by the name of Matthew that got to see that kind of healing up close and personally. The good news is, and I really do believe this, so do we. Amen.